Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have here with us today Neil Gross. He is a sociologist at Colby College and the author of Richard Vorty, The Making of an American Philosopher, and Why Are Professors Liberal and Why Do Conservatives Care? His new book is quite different. It's called Walk the Walk, How Three Police Chiefs Defy the Odds and Changed Cop Culture. That is our topic. Welcome, Professor Gross. Thanks so much for having me. All right, now. You open with a specific episode on a spring night in 1993 in Berkeley, California, an incident on the street. What happened there? So many years ago, um, back in the early 90s, before I went into uh, academia, I was a police officer. I'd always wanted to be a police officer since uh, I you know, started high school. And I think there's a, a myth that people who want to go into law enforcement do so because they desire control or, or have ill motives. I think the research shows and my own experience was that, you know, most people who go into law enforcement do it because they want to help the community. They want to do their part to, to bring down crime. Uh, that was the case for me. Uh, the crime rate was, was really high uh, in the early 90s, uh, part of the kind of at the tail end of the, the, the crack cocaine fueled uh, crime uh, uh, that happened during that time. Uh, and, uh, and I wanted to make my community safer, but I also had another goal, which was uh, I was really interested in uh, working from the inside to try to change policing, uh, to make it more equitable. This was uh, not too many uh, years, a very short time after uh, the Rodney King uh, beating in Los Angeles. And, and I wanted to, as I said, to work from the inside and make it better. So graduated from, from Berkeley, uh, went to the police academy uh, in Sacramento. Uh, and then uh, started working the streets of Berkeley. And the incident you described took place uh, not long after I'd finished field training. It was a, a minor traffic stop, uh, one of you know dozens that that we made every day. We were taught in the academy that uh, that traffic stops are extremely dangerous for police officers, uh, and that when you conduct them, you should keep the occupants of the car and make sure that uh, their hands are visible to you at all times. Uh, in fact, at traffic stops were seen as so dangerous uh, that. Uh, it was impressed upon us every day at the academy. You know, the, these are among the most dangerous situations you'll confront. And, and I remember in the um, uh, in the uh, gymnasium of the police academy, uh, there was a, a poster uh, which was part of the survival creed for the California Highway Patrol, and the, the motto was "Don't let them kill you on some dirty freeway." So you know, we were. You, you uh, cite that in the book. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We were you know very concerned about uh, about traffic stops. So we stopped a car, minor traffic violation. Um, uh, and uh, make a, a long story a little bit shorter. Um, uh, as I came up to the car, the, the passenger uh, rushed out. Uh, I told him to get back in the car, close the door. He refused, kept walking toward the porch of the house. 
um, I'm, I'm white, uh, the uh, driver of the car was black, so was the passenger. Um, uh, I mentioned this because I think this was an important part of the, the background to, to what happened. Um, uh, the passenger refused to get back in the car. I put my hand on his shoulder and he, he turned around and, and punched me. Um, so a, a fight ensued, a whole melee. Um, uh, another officer came to provide backup. Um, and in, in the course of this fight, the passenger then ran onto the porch of the house uh, and picked up a rock. He actually already thrown one rock at us and was about to throw another quite sizable rock in our direction. Uh, and so I, I drew my I drew my handgun and you know screamed at him to put the rock down. Um, and uh, I, as I describe in the book, I had to face uh, the you know, at that moment the question was, you know, should I um, shoot this individual who's posing you know, what seemed to me to be a, a lethal threat, uh, you know, risk taking a rock to the head or or or, or not? Um, it, it worked out okay. Um, he put the rock down, and we were able to take him into custody after a bit more of a struggle. Um, uh, but you know that incident stuck with me, uh, and it's it's uh, always been for me a reminder of kind of what happened. I kind of had gone in with these good intentions, make the system better, uh, and yet there I was in the street, you know, fighting with a young black man over over nothing really. You know, as I read that account, uh, by coincidence, I was in Berkeley at a, at a conference. Uh, I was just a fresh assistant professor. I think it was my first conference. I was in Berkeley, and I'm walking up. I, I don't know this Telegraph or one of the main streets there uh in the in the late morning early afternoon looking for some lunch and what was happening on the street was all these people were outside their stores obviously their own stores and they were putting up big pieces of plywood over the windows and they had uh, a drill and they were drilling screws in it looked like it had already been set up the frame was set up to put plywood already fitted over the the plate glass windows and this was happening all up and down the street and I said to someone who who was I guess a local I said what's going on and he said the Rodney King verdict is coming out today and they're getting prepared does that do, do you remember that Neil? yeah I, I remember um, uh, that whole period it's, it was a, a time of just incredible tension uh, between law enforcement and, uh, and and the black community in particular um, uh, you know, today is another time of, of such tension. You know, I, I remember uh, as I was in the police academy, I said I, I went to the police academy in Sacramento. It, most police departments, uh, vast majority of police departments are pretty small. Um, Berkeley had about 150 cops, something like that. So we didn't have our own academy. So I was sent to the one run by the city of Sacramento, and it was held on the grounds of the, of the California Highway Patrol Academy. That's why they had that poster uh, in, the, in the gym. And uh, I remember... Uh, around this time, sometime during those five months, uh, that uh, a, a large group of uh, people who were just about to graduate from the CHP Academy, or maybe had just graduated, uh, were being sent on buses uh, and were being sent down to Southern California to assist with crowd control. Um, so, you know, I was very aware of it. My fellow recruits were very aware of it. Uh, and, you know, I was I thought about this as, uh, as uh, you know, something that, that, that needed to be fixed, that, um, that clearly there, uh, was a, a deep problem in the Los Angeles Police Department. I, I didn't, uh, you know, imagine that I would face or encounter similar issues uh, in Berkeley. Um, but yeah. the tensions were absolutely there in the community. You, you say that you left the force eleven months afterwards. What, why? Why did you leave? Was it some specific incident, or, or maybe, maybe this early one kind of haunt, it seemed to haunt you a little bit? What, what was the cause there? I think it was a combination of factors. Um, you know, for one thing, I was I was very young. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I think that 
um, in the course of my time on the street, I, I realized that I was probably too young to do the job effectively. Um, you know, one of the um, departments that I profile in, in my new book is a city called Longmont in Colorado. And they're the, the chief for many years uh, who's trying to fundamentally remake that department. One of his ideas was that you know, most people aren't really ready to do the job uh, until they're a little bit older. Uh, you know, so if you're, you're 22, 23, you know, what are you going to do when you get called to a domestic dispute uh, involving a, a husband and wife in their 40s? Like, what, what can mm. you say to that? What kind of experience mm. can you bring to bear? Right? Not much. So I think I realized that I was, I was um, still too young. But the other thing was that I, I had become uh, disillusioned. Um, I, I, you know, as I said, went in with really good intentions. And what I found on the street was cop culture, um, you know, the sort of us versus them mentality. Um, everyone's out to get you. Um, the, you know, never call out your, your, your fellow officers. And it was less intense in Berkeley, for sure, than it was in surrounding communities like Oakland. You know, Berkeley is a pretty well-educated force, pretty liberal. Um, but, but it was there and it was very strong. And I remember uh, there was an incident, uh, an incident where I went to coffee uh, one night with the midnight shift. Uh, with an older officer uh, who I didn't like very much. I didn't think he was a very good cop. Uh, and he looked at me over coffee and he said, you know, Gross, in, in 20 years, you're going to be just like me. Uh, and, I, mm. and I realized at that point, you know, maybe I wasn't, this wasn't what I was meant to do. Uh, maybe maybe I'd have a better chance of, of making law enforcement better if I went and uh, studied it, wrote about it from the outside. You talk about something, you term escalation. What is the problem of escalation? And is it a serious problem in, in law enforcement? So, you know, escalation and de-escalation are, are terms, I think, without uh, uh, much precise meaning, uh, but it generally refers to a situation that uh, where, in principle, uh, everything could resolve itself peacefully uh, between law enforcement and citizens. Uh, you know, this could be any kind of situation. It could be your call to a domestic disturbance. It could be a traffic stop, you know, it could go smoothly and easily and peacefully. Uh, and, uh, and certainly that's what uh, most cops hope for uh, when they deal with incidents. That's sort of what the police do. They, they're, they're called to things, they deal with things, and they, they hope it goes smoothly and they can, they can move on. Um, but uh, sometimes incidents uh, escalate, meaning that the level of emotional intensity rises um, and the level of, uh, of violence rises. And so the question is, you know, what can police officers do to minimize that, to keep that from happening? Um, how can they uh, keep the situation as, as calm as possible? Uh, you know, and looking back, I, I think I, I didn't have the proper training uh, to keep that situation as calm as possible. Uh, I said things, um, you know, like get on the ground that I was taught to say, um, not necessarily the, the best thing to do from the standpoint of, of calming people down. And you know, now there's a lot of focus on how to de-escalate situations, but that, that translates uh, on the ground into some, some meaningful practices in some places. Um, and in other departments, it doesn't amount to much. You note that after the death of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014, President Obama put together a task force to address policing. What was the result of that task force? A report came out. Did the report have much impact? So I, I think the report um, uh, had an impact in the sense that it um, identified the need for change. Uh, and I think we continue to recognize that need for change, you know, not not uh, uh, long before the George Floyd's murder, I remember being in New Orleans for a conference. Uh, and New Orleans is a city that uh, has a history of, uh, of, of really terrible and, and brutal policing. Uh, it was put under um, federal oversight um, after, um, after Hurricane Katrina. Uh, and it had done better. It had made some real improvements over the, over the years. 
Uh, and I was there because uh, a, a bunch of uh, law enforcement executives from all over the country, I was sitting um, uh, right behind the, the uh, um, patrol chief of NYPD at the time, um, and they, they'd all gathered to learn what New Orleans had, had done. Uh, and I remember very clearly the one of the assistant chiefs of New Orleans PD um, got up and he said, you know, we, we've reached the point in law enforcement where if, if we don't change things for the better, people are going to start changing it for us in ways that we don't necessarily want. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think that the, the, the president's task force report was a clear recognition that things needed to change. Um, but that change has been has been slow to come. The bulk of the book is really a profile of three sites in America today. You're a good social scientist. You went there. You went on site. You feel you did the, the, the field work. You interviewed people. Uh, what you, your first one is is Mudville. Uh, I'll let you explain what that is. But. How did you come to select those sites? Maybe, maybe you can just tell us. How did you come to select Mudville? Yeah. Well, let me back up, up for a minute and say, you know, there, most of what's been written about uh, law enforcement in, in the press, uh, books, in recent years has been about the, the problems with policing. And, and I think that's, that's appropriate. I mean, uh, one can interpret statistics uh, in any number of ways, um, but it, it's, it seems clear that, um, that many Americans believe that policing needs to change, believe that uh, that uh, there are too many people killed by the police, um, recognize that there are racial inequalities in those in those killings and so on. So uh, it's appropriate that people focus on problems. Um, I wanted to do something different in the book. Um, I wanted to focus on three police departments that were doing things uh, right, or at least doing things better. And my particular focus was on what I encountered in the streets of Berkeley, cop culture, that, the norms, the values, the worldview of those in law enforcement. So I selected these three cities. Mudville is, is Stockton, um, uh, California, California. Uh, Longmont, Colorado. Yep. yep. And the third one is uh, LaGrange, Georgia, which is about an hour outside of Atlanta. And, and I picked these uh, after a lot of consultation with experts and you know a bunch of interviews and uh, crunching data, that kind of thing, because they all seem to be engaging in, uh, in really creative and innovative strategies to change a long-standing department culture. And I wanted to highlight what those were and what it looked like on the ground uh, when departments tried to change their culture. And Mark, if I'll just, can I, if I can just add, um, sure. you know, one of my other um, goals with the book was to kind of bring readers inside the world of these departments. You know, uh, I think one insight that's come to me as I've thought about this book is that you, you, can't, you can't change what you don't understand. Uh, and I think that there are a lot of persistent um, uh, sources of, of, of misinformation or, or kind of lack of information about what the, the real world, the daily world of the police officers like. Uh, and, and I wanted to kind of bring readers inside that world and, and point to ways yeah. in which, uh, you know, communities could, could make their departments better. So Stockton, so Mudville. Um, well, was, let me, was let me interrupt. Just, uh, let me just say yeah, one thing, please, of course. Neil, for, for a moment. You, you do, I want to tell the, the listeners that you do sprinkle uh, frequently in your discussion of policing uh, vignettes, actual episodes of traffic stops, of cop meetings, conversations, victims, uh, victim families uh, coming forward. They're quite well done. They are crisp. Uh, they're dramatic. Uh, you, you, you've inserted them into the study for that reason, real life, sort of on the ground, experiential. That's the point of those, right? That's the point of those. And, um, you know, I was uh, I was a little bit surprised that uh, that, that chiefs and officers were um, so willing to let me into that world and to share information with me. 
Um, I, I think there's a couple reasons for it. Uh, you know, one, these are departments that are that are doing things right. Uh, so part of that is that they're interested in transparency um, and uh, you know want to want to be clear about about what they're doing. Um, the other part of that is that I think a lot of cops these days feel uh, that their jobs are, are misunderstood uh, and that uh, the general public um, kind of simply doesn't understand the day-to-day -day pressures that they face. And so uh, the officers that I uh, spent time with, rode with, uh, and then had many, many phone calls and text exchanges with and so on over the years um, were, were quite open about uh, sharing those experiences with me. So yes, I wanted to bring people inside that world, um, again, with the idea uh, that if people have a better understanding of what law enforcement uh, is like, we might be able to better figure out what levers to push uh, to get it to to deliver the kind of justice uh, and the kind of uh, effectiveness of fighting crime that we all want. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Yeah, yeah. And, and I imagine a lot of the officers were happy to speak because no one ever talks to them. Uh, no one in the media, few, few reporters in the media actually really talk to them and really want to hear what, what they have to say. I, mean, I imagine there's the general feeling of mistrust of the media among police officers. But you, you do a lot of contextualization, a lot of background in the book. Uh, let me ask about uh, Stockton, Mudville. Uh, you, you talk about Chief Eric Jones there. Tell us what was Operation Ceasefire in Boston many years back and what did what did Chief Jones do with that? Hmm. Sure. Uh, well, let me first uh, say why it was called Mudville. Uh, so Stockton's in the okay. Central Valley, uh, and uh, you know we all know the poem. Um, there is no joy in Mudville. The mighty Casia struck out. Uh, so the the author of that um, verse lived in, uh, in in San Francisco uh, around the time it was written, and, and there's a lot of speculation that, uh, that 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 Stockton that had a had a baseball team um, was the site of Mudville, but there's there's some contestation. There's another uh, potential Mudville elsewhere in the U.S., but, but Stocktonians like to like to claim it as, as their own. Um, so Stockton is is a blue collar community, about 300,000 in the Central Valley. And uh, it's for many years had a very serious problem with with gangs and, and violent crime, um, uh, pockets of uh, really deep poverty there going back decades uh, that, that became the basis for a, a kind of violent gang culture in the community. Um, only a relatively small number of individuals involved, but uh, but there would be um, incidents and uh, spiraling patterns of retaliation over the years. Uh, so Eric Jones, uh, Eric Jones graduated from the police academy one year after I did, uh, and he worked his way up uh, in Stockton PD. He eventually took the helm in 2012, and uh, this was a period when Stockton was just trying to recover from the financial crisis. The city had just declared bankruptcy. And the, the crime rate uh, had shot up. Uh, there were a shocking number of murders for a city of that size. And so his first task was to try to bring the crime rate down. And, and so he uh, brought in uh, a program that had been started in Boston uh, and had been tried elsewhere uh, successfully called Operation Ceasefire. And, and the idea is this. Um, uh, you, you first start by identifying the people in the community who you think are, are most likely to be involved in serious violence, either as, as victims or, or shooters. 
Uh, and you, you do that by gathering as much intelligence information as you can, you know, talking to a whole range of community groups, looking at your, your own files. And then you start bringing those individuals in to meetings with the police, but also with, uh, with folks in, in social services, um, with, uh, with you know, community representatives like ministers, they did that in Boston. And you say, look, we, we, we're concerned. We, we think that um, there's a good chance you're gonna get involved in, in another serious crime uh, in the coming bit. And so it's a carrot and stick idea, right? On the one hand, uh, carrot. We, we want you to get out of the, the this this business. We want you to um, uh, you know, stop living a life of uh, of crime. Uh, and so we'll make resources available to you to help you to help your family uh, with education, job training, uh, that kind of th that kind of stuff. Uh, tattoo removal. Um, that's the that's the carrot part. The stick part was, um, but we're also going to be watching you. Uh, and you know, if you do anything wrong, uh, the first the first body that falls, we're going to be looking at you. And the idea here is something called focused deterrence. Uh, so in the, the literature on, on criminology, the research on criminology, there's a lot of interest in, you know, if you make the punishment for crime more serious, does that reduce crime? And one of the big findings is that, you know, in and of itself, that doesn't necessarily do much unless the people who uh, are um, uh, thinking about committing the crimes believe that they're actually going to get caught. If they don't believe that, you, you can raise the punishment as much as you want and, and it won't have much of an effect. So focused deterrence, the idea is you tell people who might be committing the crime, uh, you know, we're watching you. So if, if you did anything wrong, we're, we're on it. You're going to go to jail uh, or you're going to go to prison. Um, and, uh, and, and ceasefire worked in Stockton. It worked uh, to bring the, the, the violence rate down in, in Boston. And it worked quite well in Stockton as well. Uh, and, uh, but an interesting thing happened is Eric Jones was implementing this. Uh, he realized that uh, that for it to really gain traction, um, that uh, there was something that missing, and that was trust. A lot of the people who they bring in, uh, the gang members would say, well, "Why should we trust the police? Why should we trust that you're you're not just you know pulling us in to get us to confess to something?" There was so much mistrust uh, in this department, which for years had been run um, as as a pretty uh, sort of cowboy department, you know, trying to uh, just keep uh, keep crime as low as possible um, by locking everybody up. And so he came around to the idea that part of reducing crime in Stockton, reducing violence, uh, required that he build up trust with the community. So he leaned in really hard to a philosophy of policing called procedural justice. Uh, and I try to describe in the book uh, what that looked like, uh, you know, the trainings officers received, uh, what that looked like on the ground, resistance to it. Um, and it was uh, remarkably successful, not uh, you know, fully successful. Not every officer got on board with it, but enough did that in a short period of time, uh, trust in the community really grew. What was the zero tolerance policing model of the 1990s? Well, that was the model that uh, I, I certainly was um, familiar with as a cop and that, that Eric Jones had been brought up in. And it was the idea that uh, if you want to bring crime down, uh, the best way to do it is to uh, as, arrest as many people as you can. Um, for even minor offenses. Um, so this was uh, you know, the idea uh, sometimes linked in, in the New York City context to what's called broken windows policing. Uh, but the notion was, you know, go into a neighborhood, sweep up everybody, uh, be uh, an intense presence in the community. Uh, and, you know, there's some evidence that um, that, that along with other things uh, was you know, among the factors that helped to bring crime down, but the costs were astronomical uh, in terms of you know, people being swept up in a dragnet that um, shouldn't have been uh, uh, swept up uh, and uh, of a uh, real sense of, uh, of uh, 
uh, entirely justified anger and resentment um, in, in minority communities that were the, the subject of this intensive policing. Uh, so uh, Eric Jones had been brought up on that zero tolerance model, um, and he came to recognize that um, a better approach was something called precision policing, which is the idea that uh, you know you don't need to stop everybody um, because the vast majority of people uh, are not doing anything wrong, uh, are just trying to live their lives. The focus should instead be on those who y you know um, are the most likely to engage in serious criminality, and, and that's where police resources should be directed. You speak of a phenomenon too in in the same discussion here of the assumption of legitimacy. That I mean, then this I guess this goes is related to the trust factor that uh, the the assumption that the government, the laws are legitimate or illegitimate plays a big factor in people's behavior. How does that work? So I, this idea uh, of uh, of legitimacy as being an important part of whether people cooperate with the law uh, it stems from the work of, uh, of a psychologist named Tom Tyler. Um, there's another uh, psychologist now named Tracy Mears um, who uh, works in the same vein. And the idea is this, uh, if people uh, trust that uh, the law is, is being applied equitably and fairly, um, if they believe that, that the agents of the law, um, law enforcement, the courts are, are operating justly and fairly, then they're more likely to cooperate with it. Uh, and that means that they uh, will be less likely to uh, uh, turn to uh, private means to resolve disputes. Uh, it means that if a crime does occur, they're more likely to step forward with information um, and report it, uh, more likely to share information about suspects, um, and, and more likely to cooperate with the police in, in doing uh, informal um, kind of surveillance of the neighborhood to make sure that, that you know, everything's staying, staying safe. In the absence of that sense of legitimacy, uh, of, uh, of the laws operating in, in a just fashion, uh, people can uh, get extremely resentful, angry, alienated, um, as the, the legal scholar uh, uh, Monica Bell has noted, uh, and uh, you know, things can go downhill. So in Stockton, building up that trust, building up that sense of legitimacy was a really important part of Stockton's strategy, and it paid off. You know, I, I describe an incident in the book, um, a homicide, a gang-related gang homicide, a gang-related homicide in Stockton, really horrific um, uh, incident. Um, and in this case, uh, it was very hard to know who, who had done it. Um, the clearance rates nationally uh, for gang homicides are, are, are very low, which is a, you know, certainly a, a huge problem. Uh, but in this case, the fact that Eric Jones had put in that work to build up trust with the community uh, paid off uh, and informants ended up coming forward and, uh, and hmm. um, those, those responsible for the case were, um, were, were apprehended. Uh, so it, it pays off in terms of uh, crime control. Why did you choose Longmont? Anything in, in particular? I mean, did, was the police chief, has he, has he become well known for, his, for, for effective reform? So I, I first got interested in Longmont. I, I, was, uh, I was in my backyard uh, having a conversation with, uh, with, with the police chief there at the time, uh, this guy named Mike Butler. Uh, and, and two things struck me in this conversation. Um, first of all, Mike Butler uh, sounded to me less like a police chief and more like a professor than any cop I'd ever talked to. Mm. Um, and second, he said something really intriguing. He said, you know, my, my aim in Longmont has been to disassociate the police from the criminal justice system. Hmm. 
to disassociate the police and the criminal justice. And I, I thought, what is this guy talking about? What does that mean? Uh, and I, I thought I had to go out there for myself and, and figure it out. Um, and uh, and so he's he's done some quite intriguing reforms in Longmont. One of the things that uh, I find most interesting there um, is that he's uh, really embraced something uh, called uh, restorative justice, uh, which is a, a new, uh, uh, not new phenomenon, but something that is being uh, embraced quite widely in, in schools these days uh, and even in some prison systems. Um, and the idea is, you know, maybe instead of putting people uh, in prison or in jail for long periods of time, um, you know, what if you can instead bring uh, offenders together with victims um, uh, in uh, a moment when the offenders are, 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 are essentially required to, to uh, apologize, uh, to have an educational component to make clear uh, that they understand why they've done wrong and what the harms have been, uh, which there's usually uh, some sort of a, a fine um, uh, or, uh, or something along those lines. Um, the evidence uh, from experimental research is that, in general, uh, people who are subject to that kind of a process um, offend less in the future than people who go to prison, uh, and the victims uh, tend to uh, do better. They tend to have fewer um, uh, symptoms of PTSD. So, so Mike Butler thought this was an interesting approach, uh, and uh, but he did something that almost no other police chief has done. So he partnered with this community uh, group in Longmont uh, to make it so that uh, in certain cases where the police had identified someone who committed an offense, they didn't have to make an arrest. And so instead, if they thought that justice would be better served by putting an offender in the sort of justice process, they could divert that offender there even before the person entered the criminal justice system. Um, and it's been uh, remarkably effective in Longmont. Um, you know, they've had uh, some six or 7,000 cases uh, referred uh, over the years, um, uh, many of them juvenile cases, uh, super low rates of reoffending. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's been a remarkable success. That was one of many things that Mike Butler did in Longmont. But the main thing he did, I found, was that he, he brought a new ethos to the department, a new, a new culture, really stressing that cops had to be um, humane, uh, pay attention to issues of social responsibility. And again, that didn't percolate through to everybody in the department, uh, but it certainly had a huge effect on what happened on the street. Yeah. I mean, there, there's much more uh, about... These, these cities. Uh, we didn't get to Lagrange, Lagrange, Georgia. Um, but one of the points in your conclusion, I'll, I'll just say this, and we'll we'll wrap up. Uh, Neil is that we we talk about the reforms, the programs, the policies, which are crucial, but also crucial is, is the chief, is is the personnel, the figure at the top. You really need someone with the vision, the commitment. I don't know the charisma, uh, the, the 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 openness to 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 do this to do this well. Uh, just just maybe Neil, quick question for you: Do you see a lot of younger police chiefs coming up who who have that capacity? Not enough, um, but it really depends on on the departments. Uh, I think you're you're absolutely right, Mark, and that's one of the the points I try to make throughout the book. You know, if we want to improve policing in this country, uh, legislation, new policies, that that stuff's super important. Uh, but it alone won't do the job uh, unless you change the the culture of policing uh, on the ground. You're, you're still going to get cops who um, who behave in ways that are you know oftentimes what they're supposed to do, uh, and then occasionally, sometimes uh, you know, 
behave in ways that are unjust and unethical. Uh, so changing that culture is key. And yeah, certainly one of the, the main findings um, from, from my book, from spending time in these three cities and with all these cops is um, leadership matters tremendously. You know, if you've got a chief who has a, an original vision uh, for uh, how the, the culture of a department might be remade, uh, can can tailor that vision in a way that's really specific to that locale, so it's not just uh, cookie cutter uh, uh, imported from somewhere else. Uh, if you've got a chief who uh, embodies those that vision in you know his or her daily life and activities, uh, who really inspires uh, cops to to change, uh, you can go a huge way uh, toward changing the culture of a department. Uh, but you know, but chiefs change. Uh, and so the question is, how, how do we get more people into those top leadership roles? And that requires mentorship. Uh, it requires um, that we change the ways in which promotions take place so that chiefs can do more to select uh, top cops or you know the, the, the people coming up under them as captains, lieutenants, not because they meet some civil service checklist, uh, but because they really are you know doing a great job at uh, you know, espousing the values and, and, and living the values of the community. I think it also requires that we engage more. You know, uh, I think, the, the more that we as, as a, a nation, as communities, the more that we here in higher education uh, engage with law enforcement, um, bring uh, cops into serious conversations with community members, with people who have widely divergent views about uh, what justice is, the, the more we're gonna encourage uh, you know, officers and, and chiefs who have that creative vision, who can, who can think outside the box, um, who can be you know, unicorns like, uh, like Mike Butler uh, in mm -hmm. Longmont. Uh, so I think we need to do much more to, to, to kind of stir the pot, uh, stir up that creativity and, and see where it takes us. The book is Walk the Walk, How Three Police Chiefs Defied the Odds and Changed Cop Culture. Thank you, Professor Gross. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.